It is well decided, and we agree, that students do not shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse door. However, it is equally well decided that those constitutional rights will be administered in a way that is sensitive to the school environment. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the High School SCOTUS podcast. We are moving right along. It's the end of March, which means that spring break is here and school is almost over. Um, that, I take great offense to that because my spring break is not here for another two weeks. So keep living that California life, please. Keep living that California life. Hannah, you just need to move to California and everything. I really do. Better. I yeah. really do. Yeah. All problems solved here. You know, it's sunny every single day, bro. All yeah. right. Anyway. Oh, okay. Focus. This is High School SCOTUS, a podcast by two teenage legal nerds about how the decisions of the Supreme Court and the words of the Constitution play out behind the schoolhouse gate. I'm Elise Fenner. And I'm Hannah Saroff, the one not on spring break. Today, we are going to talk about religion, more specifically, prayer, the traditional form of religious expression. And as usual, how does this right change or evolve in the school environment? So praying in schools, I'm assuming these are your questions. When can you pray? Who can pray? Where can you pray? And most importantly, why can you or can you not pray? Elise and I will first take a stab at answering those questions. And then later in the episode, we will be joined by a real legal expert on the topic, Professor Iris Lupu of George Washington Law School. Professor Lupu knows his stuff and his stuff is religion, the First Amendment and the Supreme Court. But that's coming up. For now, you have to listen to our annoying voices for 10 more minutes as we explain the current state of affairs related to the establishment of religion and the right to pray at school. Wait, 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 Elise. Word of the day. Word of the day. Ah, yes. How could I forget? What is our word of the day? Our word of the day today is due process, both substantive and procedural. Wait, wait, wait. I feel like I'm being cheated. This feels like two words of the day. Okay, well, technically, yes, they are two words and also two entirely separate concepts. So really, you're being cheated in like four ways. Procedural due process is the one that most people are familiar with. It's the legal doctrine that prohibits the government from depriving people of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without due process of the law. This phrase is found in the Fifth Amendment. Procedural due process protects the right to a speedy and impartial trial, the right to testimony and evidence at a hearing, and the right to counsel. Okay, I think I've got that one. I feel like it always like comes up in the movies. It's like the principle that prevents the government from throwing people in jail without giving the accused a fair chance to defend themselves. But what's the other one that you mentioned? I feel like I've definitely not heard of that. Substantive due process. This principle is a little more opaque and not everyone agrees on whether it exists at all. Basically, some legal scholars and judges believe that the due process clause also protects rights concerned with substance, like the right to marry, to personal autonomy and bodily integrity, to raise your child, to work an ordinary job with ordinary hours. Okay, so everyone agrees that you have the right to due process of the law, like a trial, etc. You can't just be put in jail. But then other people also think due process protects everyday rights. Yep, that's pretty much it. Okay, so now let's move on to the right to pray at school. Okay, so where are we at right now? It's 2022. Well, it's well established that a school cannot mandate or even encourage recitation of a public prayer. This isn't a question. Well, why? In 1963, over 50 years ago, the court found six to one in Angle versus Vitale that a New York government could not use the public school system to encourage religious prayer, even though students could opt out of the prayer or be excused from the classroom. So even though participation was not mandated, there couldn't be a classroom religious prayer. The State Board of Regents recommended that the school districts implement the following prayer in each class at the beginning of the school day. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. At Union Free School District number nine, 10 parents sued the district for establishing religion in a public school, which makes sense. As a Jewish person, I would feel like a little weird about saying that prayer every day. Hold up one second. We'll get into the specific details of the justice's reasoning and why they thought this prayer was wrong in a second. But I also want to talk about oral argument because 
We listened to it and we got caught on something worth mentioning. This specific short prayer in the New York school districts was interesting. Why? Well, 49 out of 50 state constitutions begin with almost the exact same language. They admit the existence of a supreme being, much like the prayer that the school endorses each day. So there was something special about this being a school or something different that made the justices decide, you know, the state constitutions are different from what happens every day in a schoolhouse. And also, there was another contradiction that was pointed out at oral argument. The advocate on behalf of the school district caught the justices because prior to the beginning of each oral argument, the clerks say, so help me God, although not every justice ascribes to the same religion. In the end, however, the justices weren't changing their minds, no matter perhaps the seeming hypocrisy of their decision. Even though the prayer is brief, general, and doesn't specifically support one religious sect at the expense of others, it still is the government acting and using this schoolhouse, this place where students are ready to learn, to impinge on the religious freedom of students who have to attend school every day. They don't really get a choice. They have to come, they have to be there, they have to sit and listen to their school reinforce this idea of a religion and a supreme being. So this case was pretty clear because the school is forcing the teachers to do something and the students to listen. A school district expressly endorsing a prayer and putting it in every single class, every single day, that's not okay. But then the court was kind of left to figure out the gray areas. And this is what we really like to talk about on the podcast. So we lay out, you know, there's this like black and white. There's always the clear cases that the court gets first, where it's like unanimous or pretty close to unanimous because it's clear. You know, there's something that is clearly violating a student's rights in the school house or something that the government just shouldn't be doing. But then you see these cases where it gets a lot more ambiguous and you have a lot more rights that are at issue and that clash with one another in the schoolhouse. So the first case to test how far the court would go in defending the Establishment Clause was Lee versus Wiseman. This case asked whether there could be prayer at a graduation ceremony. So think about your traditional high school graduation ceremony. They're not compulsory like public school and not all the students are there. It's a big event, students give speeches, sometimes the principal does or teachers do. And in this case, prayers also came from members of the clergy. Although their faith varied each year and the prayer was intended to be non-sectarian, It was still a prayer, and it was still invited by the school. So the court said that this reasoning was really just splitting hairs, because as Elise said, it's still this state-sponsored and state-directed event. And honestly, if you're a senior graduating, you kind of have no choice but to attend and participate in the ceremony. Like, if I was a senior, I'll definitely be attending my graduation because I want my diploma. Um, It's kind of a big deal. I mean, just think about telling your grandchildren that you skipped your high school graduation, let alone the peer pressure and the Instagram posts that you would miss out on. So for once, it seemed like the court kind of grounded itself in the practical realities of teenage life, declaring that graduation was, in a real sense, obligatory. Teenagers aren't just going to skip out on that. Furthermore, the idea that students could just opt out of the prayer was also illusory. They had to stand silently during the ceremony, the equivalent of Subtle coercion, as Justice Kennedy put it. But the decision was far from unanimous. In fact, it was five to four, a narrow split. Again, Justice Kennedy, in just his fourth term on the court, wrote the opinion, and he established this coercion test. Public school students, whose ideas and beliefs are more malleable, are coerced when clergy deliver benedictions at school-sponsored events, even if the students aren't required to attend or required to participate in the prayer. However, Justices Thomas, the current most controversial justice on the court, and Scalia dissented. They argued that the First Amendment only prohibits coercion if there is a looming threat or penalty for not obeying the school. So if a student had to skip school to avoid it, prayer, that was unconstitutional coercion. But if they could skip graduation without any tactile consequences, the prayer was constitutional. Okay. So in school and at graduation, we can have someone come up and give a prayer and have students kind of feel like they should be participating or kind of have to be there and at least sit and listen to the prayer because that's a problem. It's coercion. It's establishment of religion. But Hannah, are there any other gray areas? Oh, of course there are, or we wouldn't have this episode. So there's another big one, and that is the football stadium or other kind of sports events. The crown jewel of every high school of Friday night lights and overtime victories at every home varsity football game with the crowd packed, 
raucous fans ready for a game, the student council chaplain at Santa Fe High School delivered a clearly Christian prayer to attendees. So this case is especially interesting. The district court first enjoined the school policy that mandated delivery of the prayer that said some student council chaplain had to deliver a prayer at every football game. But then the school changed their policy. Maybe they owned up to their mistake. And they said that the invocations would be optional based on student choice and initiation. So it was going to go to a vote, much like an election. Would the students want to keep the prayer? And then who would they choose as their chaplain? But the students voted to keep the prayer. And the district court said the policy still needed to change. These prayers were problematic because they were inherently religious. If they were non-religious, then maybe that would be fine. But for the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court, a non-sectarian prayer policy will violate the Establishment Clause. Woo! A lot of big words. Why? The district had again placed an insufficient veneer of secularism over their prayer policy. It might have been student-initiated and student-led, but the prayer occurred at an important school event on government property and was allowed and endorsed by the school. In essence, it was the same situation as the graduation, which was practically identical to the New York policy. So here we're kind of seeing that even though these cases seem on, their, on the surface different, they're all really similar because they're all associated with a school and associated with this idea that it seems like it's being endorsed by the school. Even if it's student initiated or delivered by a student, it's held by the school and it feels like coercion and establishment just to have it there. But importantly, the football saga is set to continue at the court. Later this term, the justices will hear Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, a case that considers whether a coach can lead his team in prayer on the football field after a game. This is fascinating to me as a case because it really highlights the differences between public and private school constitutional rights because I go to a private school and so we play in a mostly private school league and sometimes we'll play against Christian or Catholic schools that will do a prayer on the field and students who are friends of mine will be like Hannah this is so weird this should not be allowed and I'm like well actually they can kind of do what they want even if it makes you a little uncomfortable but according to the Ninth Circuit Kennedy's prayer wasn't just a private activity in this case. He was using his form as a public employee to recruit and gain traction for his post-game prayer. However, the Ninth Circuit wasn't really in total agreement. Some of the judges thought the ruling was a flagrant violation of Kennedy's free speech rights. Even if students were listening in, the prayer was inherently private and personal, they argued. So that's the interesting thing, as Hannah points out. So at her private schools, and when she goes to private school events, there are religious teams that might pray, and they can do that as a whole because they are not a public school. But in Kennedy, we see that Kennedy, on his own, if it's de declared a private prayer, he's totally fine to do that. And I go to public school, if one of the players on my team decided that they were going to go off in the corner and pray before a game, that would be totally fine. But the thing that's really problematic about Kennedy's, or some people think it is, is that he was right on the 50-yard line when the stands were packed, and he's also in this position of power as a coach, and he's using that power to maybe make other kids feel like they have to pray as well, which is the real problem. But the Supreme Court, with a conservative supermajority, is friendlier than ever to religious liberties and warier than ever of any government encroachment or discrimination on full exercise of those religious rights. So it wasn't surprising that the court took this case, despite the market absence of a circuit split, and we wouldn't be surprised to see the court rule in favor of Coach Kennedy here. Elise is definitely pontificating a little bit, but hopefully reading the tea leaves for you all. Let's go to her conversation with Professor Iris Lupu for some real insight into the religious clauses of the First Amendment, prayer in school, and Coach Kennedy's odds at the Supreme Court. We are now so lucky to be joined by Professor Ira C. Lupu of George Washington Law School. Professor Lupu is an expert on the First Amendment with a focus on the Establishment and Free Exercise Clauses. We are so lucky that he could take the time to speak with us today. Good morning. So Professor Lupu, what were you interested in as a high school student? We always like to ask our guests who they were as teenagers. It's kind of a fun intro. I'm so glad you asked. I know you've asked previous guests this question and I was so I was a bit, maybe a bit more prepared than some of your other guests for this question. I think it might help if I tell your uh, listeners that I'm probably 
older than some of the other guests you've had. I'm high school class of 1964. I went to high school in Albany. I'm 75 years old. I went to high school in Albany, New York. Now, this all pertains to today's conversation because the Supreme Court's original school prayer decisions were 1962 and 1963. The 62 decision involved the New York State Regents Prayer. So I have local familiarity with it, although we didn't say it in my school, but it was something that happened in New York State. So my time in high school coincided with the Supreme Court's entry into this decision about these kinds of questions. Here's what I want to say about what I was like in high school. I love to read. I love to learn. I was a very good student. I was on a very good high school debating team. We won not just me alone. There were four of us. We won many championships and many trophies. And so that was an important part of my sort of acquiring certain skills that then came in handy when I became a law professor later, being a high school debater. And I want to add that on the coolness scale, right, where one is the least cool and 10 is the coolest, I was probably a one or a two for the first few years of high school. But then in 1963, when I was a senior and the Beatles invaded America, and I started growing my hair out long, I probably got to about a three or a four by the time I graduated. So I have fond feelings about my days in high school, and they do bear on the conversation we're going to have today. Not many of us can say we made the leap from a one to a maybe a four. I'm pretty impressed. I feel like I'm hovering around the one to two for my entire high school career, but that's pretty cool. Were you guys aware of, I know you're referencing Angle versus Vitali. Were you guys aware of the case at the time as high school students, or was that kind of not on your radar? I'm sure I was aware of it. Not because the Albany schools used the Regents Prayer daily. They did not. And I'm not sure why. It was optional, I believe, by county or local school districts. So some did, some didn't. But Albany is the capital of New York. The Board of Regents sits in Albany. When the Supreme Court said states may not sponsor prayer in public schools, that was a local story as well as a national story, right? The, the newspapers in Albany covered state government and the policies of state government. And this was a big deal that the Supreme Court of the United States said, okay, something New York State was, had been doing, you can't do anymore. I think when, when people today learn about the original school prayer cases, 1960s, they think about school-sponsored prayer, maybe they imagine those cases came out of Tennessee or Alabama or someplace in the Bible Belt. No, New York State, that was Engel and Vitale, and, and, and the Philadelphia metro area, that's Abington School District against Shemp, which is, Abington is a suburb of, of the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So these were cases out of the Northeast, places that people don't think associate with like strong governmental public observance of religion. But that's where they came from. And so I was paying attention. I had been paying attention to the Supreme Court since 1954. It was one of the first newspaper stories I can remember. I was seven, going on eight years old, when Brown versus the Board of Education got decided. It was front page news. I was in the second or third grade. And I went, whoa, this is a big deal. I didn't know there were segregated schools before that. And I didn't really understand much about the Supreme Court. But yes, I was paying attention. What a time to grow up in, though, just with the Warren Court and like everything going on. That's just that's so interesting. I, feel, I know that this time is insane as well, but that must have been just really cool to grow up in. You know what? It was the 50s, and you probably already know this, the 50s in general were, the 50s were a culturally quiet time, right? It was after World War II and Korea, and, you know, soldiers were back, and it was a kind of uh, emphasis on domestic peace very traditional time in terms of gender roles, men and women, and men were back from war and they were going to take the jobs and women were going to be home. And the 60s, you know, the 60s had a different flavor. So by the time I got to high school, but even the early 60s, was just the beginning of that flavor. It, yes, in Supreme Court terms, the Warren Court was doing very important things. I'm sure as a child, I did not appreciate how the Warren Court was different from its predecessors, right? Eventually, I became a professor, taught constitutional law, studied the subject as a, as a college student, as a law student, taught the subject. 
So of course I now have the Warren Court in some perspective. I'm sure I didn't when I was 15 years old. So it's clear that debate and just a general awareness and interest in the law kind of set you on this constitutional law path, but why the First Amendment and why religion specifically as an area of focus? Many people have asked me this question, Elise. How, how did, you know, what got you started in writing about religion and the Constitution? And here's my standard answer, and I think it's true, okay, but I'm, I'm going to say it again, and we'll see how it comes out this time. Unlike many people who write about religion and the Constitution, I am not a religiously observant person. Okay? I grew up, uh, my family was Jewish. I grew up at a bar mitzvah. I grew up in a synagogue, conservative synagogue. As an adult, I was not terribly observant. Religion was not a central part of my life. And I would say when I was in law school and for my first eight or 10 years as a law professor, I was not centrally focused on these questions. I was not. I did pay attention to matters of uh, racial equality, privacy, reproductive freedom, free speech. I think it struck me in the early 80s, and I'm not sure exactly what it was. I mean, I, I could tell you a story. I know what case brought me in, and maybe this is the better way to tell it. it in around 1983 or four, a former student of mine who was clerking on a district court in Rhode Island um, called me and said, uh, Professor Lupu, we have a case in our court involves a challenge to the city's display of a Christmas crash. And, and someone, a taxpayer's challenged it, said the city should not be sponsoring a religious display at Christmas time. And the city defending it has brought in this law professor to try to write a brief that on their side, would you be willing to write a friend of the court brief, not on the side of the challengers, on whatever you think. The student said, whatever you think, would be interested in your views. Because I had, I had taught her in a course about the First Amendment, speech and religion both. So I looked at cases called Lynch versus Donnelly. It wound up being one of, the, one of the very first Supreme Court cases about the constitutionality of religious displays, not in school, right? It's not a school case. It's in the middle of town. And I began to think really hard about, about the doctrines of the religion clauses what made sense and what didn't make sense and how they fit with, with the doctrines of the speech clauses and how they fit with equality concerns. And I thought to myself, you know, this is an, this is an underexplored corner or piece of constitutional law. At the time it was. There were not many scholars writing about religion and the constitution in the early to middle 1980s. So I jumped into it really quite opportunistically. I said, there's the things to be said here that people aren't saying. I also could see the Supreme Court was changing. The Warren Court was gone, well gone. Ronald Reagan was president. We were getting Sandra Day O'Connor and, and Anthony Scalia on the Supreme Court. It was the rise of the evangelical movement in American religion and politics. I could see that things were changing and that they were likely to change. And indeed, they had changed quite a bit in those 30 years, right? One, in various directions, they have changed. This has been a very active place in American constitutional law for the last 35 years. So I, I kind of jumped in at a good time in terms of where the law was going. And, and then I kind of, I helped run my scholarly career out of that. I was also greatly benefited by having about 20 years ago, someone, Bob Tuttle, who had been a student of mine at George Washington University, then became a colleague of mine at George Washington University. He has a PhD in religious ethics as well as a law degree. And he and I became co-authors about 20 years ago. And 90% of my writing in the last 20 years has been co-authored with Professor Tuttle, who has been a great inspiration to me, intellectual and otherwise. So that all sustained me even through and including retirement, right? I'm now retired from teaching. I'm an emeritus professor, but I've kept up my scholarly work on religion and the constitution. And I'm very interested in the case of uh, Kennedy against Bremerton School District that we're gonna talk about later. I'm gonna go out on a short tangent here because you brought up religious displays. And I just wanted to ask, what do you think of Charlotte versus Boston and the case of whether a flagpole is a public forum? Were you interested in that? The court seemed very hostile to city hall from what I remember, but what do you think? Uh -huh. 
<laughs> I was paying close attention to that case. I was paying close attention. I had some conversations with uh, lawyers who were directly involved in that case. And your, your listeners know what the case is about, but the flagpole at, on, uh, at Boston City Hall on the plaza, government plaza at Boston City Hall, and the city let other groups use the flagpole for like one day only displays of their flag, right? And various things, national displays, organizational displays. And then someone came along and wanted to put up a Christian flag for one day and had to, had to do with their camp and, and their beliefs, but also their summer camp. And the city said, no, and that's what led to the lawsuit. And the argument, the case has not been decided yet. The argument went badly for the city. I wasn't surprised that the argument went badly for the city because the city had been rather careless in the way it had managed the forum and the flagpole. They kept saying, yes, 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 to everyone who wanted to run a flag. And all of a sudden, this someone shows up and wants to put up a Christian flag one day only, and they say no. And the reasons weren't very good. They weren't very exp well explained. And so it really looked like they created a forum, but then suddenly said, no, we're going we're gonna to say no to, to a conservative Christian organization. And it looked like discrimination in the administration of the forum. It, they could have managed that all very differently. I expect the city's going to lose that case. That was my reading of it as well. And I feel like this happens a lot at the court, that this was a bad case to deal with it because the city had just done such a bad job of establishing the forum in the first place and managing how yes. they administered it. So that was interesting to me, at yes. least. Even Justice Kagan at the oral argument said to them, I'm surprised you haven't, to the city's lawyer, I'm surprised you haven't settled this case. Meaning, you know, you're about to get your head handed to you here. And I don't know why you're still litigating this. Well, they'd won. I mean, you know, sometimes lower courts don't do you a favor when they rule your way and something where it's likely to get reversed if the Supreme Court takes it up. And that's what had happened. The city had won in the lower courts and just kind of teed up something for the Supreme Court to reverse and rule against the city. And OK, that's that's the way it went. So that was fun for me, but I want to talk about schools because that's our focus and what we've brought you here today to talk about. So we've talked a lot about on this podcast how the right to free speech is diminished but still exists in the schoolhouse. And so what would you say about the freedom of religion and exercise? How does that right change in schools and how does it evolve? Well, I want to take a quarter step back from your question and then I'm going to take on your question. The First Amendment has, has two provisions related, link provisions about religion, right? And so I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to try to do this with memory, or I could. I'm going to read it. This is how the Bill of Rights starts. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then it goes on to talk about speech and press and other rights as well. So and your listeners probably know, and we should remind them if they don't or if they've forgotten, that even though the First Amendment says Congress, it's limited only to the federal government and only to Congress, the Supreme Court has interpreted it so as to apply to the entire government, including state and local government, by virtue of what's called incorporation of the Bill of Rights through the 14th Amendment and application to the states. So the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause apply to state governments and local governments in the same way as they apply to the federal government. Okay? And that's an important thing to understand. And the Free Exercise Clause is a conferral of rights, right? You have a right to freely exercise your religion. And that makes it sound like freedom of speech and freedom of press and freedom of association or assembly. It's a right. The Establishment Clause is not on the face of it about rights. People sometimes think of it as being about rights, and we're going to talk about it today as being including the right to be free of government coercion in your religious sentiments and what you say about them. But the Free Exercise Clause by itself protects you against government coercion to utter a prayer that you don't want to utter. The Establishment Clause is a little bit different. It's not about rights. It's about the character of the government, right? The, the government, what we've done in the United States, and it's really quite unique in the world, certainly was at the time, 
constitution came into being. We have separated political and religious authority. Right? This is, I think of the establishment clause as a separation of powers provision. Political authority in any country can be very strong, can be coercive. The government can say what's, what's lawful and what's not, lock you up for breaking the law. Religious authority can also be very powerful, right? It speaks to the, the quality of souls, the experience and the future of souls. It, it speaks from some transcendent authority. So the idea of unifying religious and political authority, which many countries do, is a kind of invitation to, at its worst, to totalitarianism, right? When political and religious authority are in the same hands, think how dangerous that can be. So what we've done in the United States is to separate religious and political authority. We said political, the state has political authority, but religious authority, the state can't exercise it. Religious authority is for families, it's for religious institutions, it's for individuals. You don't look to the state for religious authority. So when students are in school, up to the age of 16, most every state, they are there by compulsion. Of course, most people want to go, children want to go to school, their parents want them, their families want them to go to school. But education is compulsory up to the age of 16. You are there by force of law, right? You're truant if you're not there. You are there as a matter of compulsion. So that, that itself is political authority to command young people to go to school. And one way to think about the school prayer cases is that they say, listen, we can force you to go to school. We can't force you to also listen to the religious authority as the state wants to speak it, whether it's through a prayer the state composes or prayers that the principal or teachers or other people in the school might compose. That is left to your family and your church or your synagogue or your religious community. That is not something the school does. And if you look at those original school prayer cases, Engel versus Vitale and Abington versus Shemp, 1962, 1963, they don't talk about coercion. They're not focused on rights. They are focused on this. They don't, use, they don't explain it exactly the way I just explained it. But that's the idea, is that the state should not be exercising religious authority. So prayers are not for schools to compose or to sponsor or promote. And unlike, you know, you asked me about speech and you said, well, you know, maybe speech rights of students are, might be less in school than they might be outside of school because the special needs for order and control. In some ways, your right to be free of state exercised religious authority is stronger in school than it is anywhere else. Because you're young, you're impressionable, you're there by force of state law. And the school prayer cases say, no, the state cannot exploit that and try to indoctrinate you on matters of religion. Okay? In terms of free exercise, I would say free exercise and free speech rights, essentially for students coincide, coincide. You're free to express yourself, but not on religion or on politics or on other things, but not in ways that might disrupt the school cause harm to other students, right? The same issues you talked about when you talked with Professor Ross about free speech in school, some of the limits on free speech in school has to do with the rights of other students or the right to school to maintain order. I would say free exercise works the same way. Students wanna gather at the flagpole in front of school before school and say a prayer, fine, they can do that. That's the students acting on their own. They're not harming anybody, they're just associating for religious purposes. They wanna say grace before lunch in the cafeteria, fine, let them do that. And, the, and if they wanna proselytize within limits, they can try to say to a fellow student, oh, come to church with me this Sunday. And, and the limits on proselytizing are like the limits on any other kind of, what should we say, pers you know, repeated persuasion that people don't wanna hear, right? If somebody says, no, thank you, I'm not interested in your religious belief or your community, if you pester people about it, then the school can stop you from pestering people. But that's the same whether it's religious proselytizing or, or sexual harassment or political proselytizing or any other kind of speech that, that turns into pestering. Did I answer your question? I hope I did. Yeah, definitely. I think something that I actually found so fascinating about your answer is that the Establishment Clause really is at its height in the schools because it is this place where there is compulsory attendance, where students are impressionable and malleable. And I think 
that's super interesting to me because we often talk about how rights are almost diminished in the schoolhouse, but I think it's interesting to see how this right is actually at its peak, or maybe it's not even a right, but well, as you've said, but this idea is at its peak at schools. I think that's fascinating. So in schools, how do we draw the line between what is private exercise in prayer and what becomes public in school sponsored school sanctioned prayer? Well, sometimes these sometimes the question is not close, right? But sometimes either way, sometimes the question is not close. So in those original school prayer cases, in Engel versus Vitale, New York State said, here is the regent's prayer. Schools are free to, to recite it or have students recite it every morning. Well, that was clear. It was coming from the state. And it was clear that that was state sponsored. In Abington School District, again, Shemp, the school had students select the Bible verses, but the, they were then read over the loudspeaker to all classes in the school each morning along with the Pledge of Allegiance and the Lord's Prayer, okay? And that was what the school said. Some student can pick a Bible verse, and then we're going to do the Pledge of Allegiance and the Lord's Prayer. And before I get slightly more deeply into your question about how do we tell whether it's private or public, just notice that the combination of a Bible verse, the Lord's Prayer, and the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Look, look at the way this is a this is an attempt to unify political and religious authority. Exactly what I said was the concern of the Establishment Clause. It's getting defied by any attempt by the school to say, belief in your country, belief in God, these all belong together as a morning exercise. Well, those were clearly school-sponsored. And you know, the next big case in the Supreme Court is a graduation prayer case, Lee against Weissman, where the school invites a clergyman, different ones, different times, not always the same faith, but a clergyman with a request to make an invocation at the beginning of commencement. Now, it's a ceremonial occasion. It's easy to see why some people think prayer is an appropriate way to start it in private institutions. That happens all the time. But clearly, that's a school-sponsored enterprise when, the, when there's a clergyman who's invited. Now, imagine it, we don't have an invited clergyman. We have a student uttering the prayer at graduation. Well, there I would draw, I would make a distinction between a, the school's decision to have a student-led invocation. If the school says, let's have a student say a prayer at the beginning of commencement, that is still a school-sponsored prayer. But suppose the school says, as many do, the valedictorian, the student with the highest grade point average gets to make a speech. And suppose the student who makes the speech wants to thank God for her success in school and, and make other references to God, or even ask the, the graduates to pray with her. Now, that, that is a school-sponsored event, but the particular content of that speech, the idea of the speech, the platform for the speech is school-sponsored. The religious content is not school-sponsored. I, I think that's a much closer case on the question of whether something is school sponsored or not. And if somebody asked me my lawyer's opinion, oh, do we have to tell every valedictorian that she or he may never invoke God? I'd say, no, you don't have to say that because that student is crafting his or her own speech and ought to have free choices. And we shouldn't be discriminating based on various sources of inspiration for somebody's success in school. But that's a close, you know, because it's a commencement and it's a school platform, it's a closer case. Now, now let's go to the other extreme. You know, the example I used before, a student who wants to stay grace before lunch in the cafeteria. Nobody would think that's school sponsor. People are in the cafeteria. People, you know, they're talking with their friends. They're making jokes. They're looking at their phones or whatever they do before lunch. And suppose there's one or even four students and they say, let's have, let's have a prayer before we eat lunch. That's our custom and practice. Other students might like to join in. They might like to stay away. That is not school-sponsored. Now, notice up till now, I haven't said anything about teachers or staff. This gets very tricky quickly because employees, coaches, teachers, they are agents of the school. They represent the school. So students are not agents of the school. Students don't 
ordinarily students don't represent the school. A valedictorian in some ways is representing the school at the, at, at the commencement. A student at lunch table every day is not an agent of the school. A teacher or a coach represents the school. So when a teacher or a coach wants to engage in religious expression, then there's always a question about whether they are speaking just for themselves or they're speaking for the, for the school or to put it differently, whether their speech should be attributed to the school or not attributed to the school, right? And that's, that's not a simple thing, but I think most schools have done quite sensibly is to have policies about this that say to teachers or coaches, look, we're not trying to cut off your religious freedom. You're gonna worship the way you worship. And if some student asks you, oh, do you go to church? You should feel free to ask the question. If you wear uh, a cross or a Star of David on a chain around your neck, students might ask. If you wear a head covering and you're a Muslim or you're a Jew who covers their head or, or a veil, then of course, that's okay. That's the way you dress. Students can ask about that. So there are things that teachers or coaches might do at school that express something about their religious identity, but that's who they are and they're entitled to do that. When they are in front of their class or in some way speaking in ways that, that students are watching and listening to, then ordinarily we attribute what they do, what they say to the school, the curriculum they teach. The school doesn't choose every word for them, but the school says, okay, teach, you know, teach Shakespeare, not D.H. Lawrence. The school makes choices about what material to cover, and that's properly attributed to the school. So in the ordinary instructions to teachers and coaches are not that they have to be silent about their religious faith or identity, but that they shouldn't manifest it in ways that is designed to promote or encourage or discourage student religious identity, right? Teachers have no business promoting or discouraging students from having their own religious identity. So we've been like circling around Coach Kennedy here in this conversation, haven't we? But we haven't talked exactly about Coach Kennedy. So I don't know if you want to do that now, but, but it's important to notice that the cases in the Supreme Court about prayer in schools have never involved teachers or coaches. They just haven't. They haven't involved the school sponsoring something. Sometimes the students are the ones who are doing the speaking. Uh, sometimes they're an invited guest, not teachers or, or coaches. But that has not come up before in, in the Supreme Court's decision. And it's pretty rare even in the lower courts for there to be cases about teachers or coaches. I think as you've brought up, it seems like teachers and coaches is this really interesting gray area because you have public officials or the district or the state making laws clearly speaking on behalf of the government, but then you have students who are clearly just speaking on behalf of themselves and retain that autonomy. And then you have teachers that are in this gray area where they are both choosing to be a teacher and also choosing that this is where they spend their time and this is how they express themselves, but also de facto because of their job, they are representing the government in a way. And I think that's interesting that we haven't seen a case about that yet and makes Kennedy all the more nuanced. So let's talk about Kennedy now, because I think you have shown that Kennedy is kind of this very close case in that it's a coach leading a team in prayer or maybe choosing to pray on his own and his team joining him in the center of the field in a school forum. So why did the court choose to take this case and why is it so significant? Well, why did the court take it? I, I'm going to go off on that a little bit before we come back to the particulars of the case, which we definitely should talk about. This is a Supreme Court, and I'm talking in particular about its conservative members, who are just hell-bent, I'm going to use that word, hell-bent on remaking the law of religion and the Constitution. So in the last 10 years, about 10 years. I stopped teaching eight years ago. So I, I keep count. And certainly since I've retired, but even a few years before that, there have been a lot of cases about religion and the Constitution that the Supreme Court has taken. And what I would call the pro-religion side has always won 
Now, sometimes the pro-religion side is someone complaining that they didn't get a fair share of state money or their rights to express themselves in a certain way were violated. Sometimes the pro-religion side is the government side, where, where the town of Greece, for example, a case about a prayer at a, at a town council meeting where the government wants there to be prayer and there are people who are challenging that, that prayer practice as an establishment clause violation and the town wins. So the pro-religion side, whether it's against the government or for the government, the common denominator in all these cases is the pro-religion side has always won. And it goes back about 10 years. And it's clear to me that there are a number of justices and Justices Alito and Thomas probably and Gorsuch are sort of at the vanguard of this. They're just looking for cases where they think religion has been discriminated against or religion has been mistreated and, and they want to take them. So when this case about Coach Kennedy came up a few years ago and the school district had won and the coach had lost and his complaint that his free exercise and free speech rights um, had been violated when he was told he couldn't pray exactly where and when he wanted to at 50 yard line right after the game. There were several justices who joined an opinion saying, well, the case is not quite ready. The, the lower courts haven't fully developed it yet, but we're paying close attention to this. And if, you know, if it looks like Coach Kennedy's rights to pray are being violated, speech rights, religion rights, we're going to be taking a close look. And they sure were. So then when the case came back, even Coach Kennedy lost yet again in the, in the Ninth Circuit in California, in the, on the West Coast. And they were there ready to take it. And most of the cases the Supreme Court takes involve conflicts among the circuit courts, right? Once one court of appeal says one thing, a different one says something else. There's a conflict in, in federal law. The Supreme Court has to resolve the conflict and unify the law. That's a very important function. There was no conflict among the circuit courts on teacher prayer or coach prayer, nothing, no such thing. So they were reaching out for this one. And so it's one more on a line, perhaps, where there's some justices who think, well, religious people, or religious causes are being victimized or discriminated against. That's just a pattern. Now, on the case in particular, the, the factual story is a little bit complicated. The coach's practice changes over time. But the consistent piece of it is that he wants to pray immediately after the game at the 50-yard line. And he does that before he's warned by the district that he perhaps he's crossing a line and they want him to stop. He does that, and sometimes players gather around him from his own team, sometimes from the other team. Sometimes he makes motivational speeches that include prayer. And this goes on for a while, and then when the school district gets wind of it, they reach out to him and they say, Coach Kennedy, listen, you're entitled to your religious expression, but you can't do it in your role as coach. You cannot be encouraging your players to join you in prayer right after a football game. That's inappropriate under the school prayer cases. Some other players are going to feel pressure. We've heard some people feel pressure to participate. Maybe you're not going to play them if they don't join you. You've never threatened, he's never threatened anybody with that, but students are, some students are uncomfortable with this. And they ask him to just kind of quiet it down. If he wants to pray, wait till everybody's left the field, left the stands, or go off somewhere where not everybody sees him. And, and when they tell him that, he gets very upset. And he has lawyers, and he goes on social media, and he says, I'm being fired for praying. And now there's a lot of attention and there's crowds and, and it becomes a cause celeb. And, you know, the school board tells him, no, you can't do it this way. And still one more time, he goes back on the next game, right after the game, he goes to midfield immediately after the game. Some people join him. He says a prayer. And then his own coach head coach of the team is unhappy. He says, Coach Kennedy's not cooperating. He's not doing his job. He's not supervising players after the game. He gets a, Coach Kennedy gets a bad evaluation from his supervisor, the head coach. The district doesn't renew him. 
for the following year. They don't fire him. I think they put him on a paid leave. He still gets paid. He's on paid leave. And then he's not renewed for the following year. And then he brings his lawsuit. So yeah, I want to say several different things about this. Number one, to call Coach Kennedy's prayer private is really to distort the facts of the case. He was never trying to be private. He didn't insist that players pray with him, but he's going to the 50-yard line right after the game, and he's doing it even after there's been a lot of publicity about this, right? It's really quite public in that way. Number two, from the point of view of the school district, they are, and this is a very important perspective on these cases, the principal of the school or the, the people who run the school district they have to manage the schools and they have to respect the various competing considerations that go on in managing the school. On the one hand, they wanna respect the rights of students and teachers and coaches. They don't wanna trample on anybody's rights. On the other hand, they have constitutional obligations under the school prayer cases, not to sponsor a prayer exercise in a school function. And they're trying to manage those competing imperatives to respect the rights of students and coaches and teachers, but also not to be sponsoring a prayer exercise. And I think here the school district tried their best to give the coach some guidance about when and where and how he could pray and when and where and how he couldn't or shouldn't pray. And that's what the Ninth Circuit, the Court of Appeals said, that they had good reason to tell him that he couldn't continue his practice of praying at the 50-yard line immediately after the game. Now, you know what the Supreme Court is going to say? Uh, I don't know. I, I hope that they are mindful of the importance of discretion, judgment on the part of the school district. They need some room for judgment to manage these kinds of potential conflicts between free exercise rights and establishment clause responsibilities. The world can't be said, it's unmanageable if every time a teacher or a coach wants to pray, it's either, oh, he has a right constitutional right to pray, but if he says, or she says, you know, the wrong word at the wrong time, then it's a constitutional violation because the school is sponsoring prayer. There's, there's a gray area about what's what, and the school has to manage it. And I think this, this case is about the school trying to manage that. And I think they managed it fine, but obviously Coach Kennedy doesn't think that, and his lawyers don't think that, and we'll see if the Supreme Court thinks that. Let's say the court decides that Kennedy does have a right to pray at the middle of the football field after a game. What reasoning would they have for why he would be able to do that and why that wouldn't be coercing students or using a school forum to dictate to students their religious practices? How could they uphold it? Well, first, I think they would say, let's just start with the coercion point. I think some of them would say, you know, coercion, we've had too loose a view of what's coercion. Coercion really should mean you're going, to be, you're going to be punished if you don't do it. You're going to be kicked off the football team if you don't cooperate. Nobody's being coerced that way. So there's no, you're going to be expelled from school. Nobody's being coerced in that way. Or even if they had a more relaxed view of coercion, some of them might say, there's no evidence that anyone was coerced. There's no testimony in the record because of the way the case came up. There's no testimony in the record that any student said, gee, I really felt like I had to pray or the coach was going to, you know, look at me badly. I was going to lose my chance to start on the team or whatever it was. And, and, and just think about that for a second. Think about how terrible it would have to be if students would have to testify against their coach about, you know, in order for these cases to be litigated. Think at how divisive this is where some students on the team say, oh, no, listen, I, nobody, he didn't make anybody pray and I was happy to go along. I like to pray. I like to pray with my teammates. And other students said, no, 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 it's very uncomfortable for me. This is not my prayer. Or I'm an atheist or whatever their story might be. It's a very divisive thing to do. So, but okay, there's no evidence in the record that anybody was coerced. So some justices might say coercion is bad, but we don't, there's no proof that, that, it has, that there was any coercion. On the question of sponsorship, you know, the coach is arguing 
the school, we know the schools are sponsoring this. How do we know? They asked him not to do it. They asked him not to do it. And so when he does it, he must be doing it on his, they've already, the school's already disclaimed it. He must be doing it on his own. And everybody knows that Coach Kennedy like, prays fervently at the end of a game. And when he does it, it's not because the school, not like the Regents Prayer Case in New York. It's not, it's not Bible verses over the loudspeaker in Abington Township. It's a coach on his own going to midfield. And yes, it's right after the game. And yes, it's the 50-yard line. So that's his quirkiness. But the game is over. He's not asking anyone to join him. If people join him, that's up to them. It's voluntary. And so the school is not sponsoring it. Now, in the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit, the court said, well, this, the school district had reason to be concerned that this prayer would look like an endorsement by the school district of the prayer. Now, endorsement is a magic word in, in establishment clause cases. And there was a time when the idea that the government may not endorse religious beliefs. And it was more refined than that, but it's the basic idea. That was a, that was a key idea for quite a, for a number of years. But over the last several years, that idea has been, hasn't been explicitly and totally rejected by a Supreme Court majority, but it's been frowned upon. It's been discouraged. It's been diminished. So I think this time a majority of the Supreme Court is going to say, this idea about endorsement, we, we don't think that's a sound way to think about this. That's the way the Ninth Circuit thought about it. We don't think it's a sound way to think about it. Even if it were, the school district did not endorse the coach's prayer. Now, some student or player or fan or parent might think, might think they endorsed it, but they didn't endorse it. And we shouldn't let the coach's right to pray turn on some mistaken impression by a player or a parent or a fan that the school district is sponsoring this because they're not, okay? So, so I do think there's some of the Supreme Court justices, we don't know how many, are gonna say there's not coercive. The school district did not endorse it. There's no reason to think that they, objective reason to think they promoted or endorsed it. And therefore he was on his own. And therefore he was praying only for himself. And he had a right to do that. I, I could certainly see the case going that way. Do you think the conservative supermajority's overall holistic emphasis on religious exercise and eroding the school district's discretion in this way, do you think that kind of contradicts in some ways the fact that the American public is actually growing less and less religious each year? This is something I'm interested in because I know when Angle was decided, there were some people that were upset because we were a very religious country at the time and everyone practiced religion in public schools, but now it's a very different story. And so do you think that will impact the reaction to the decision or is the court moving away from public opinion on the issue? I have never been one to think that public opinion is a good, strong indicator of where constitutional law is going. I, I don't think that now. I, I do think that you put your finger on a trend, a social demographic trend that to which a number of members of the court are sensitive, which is that traditional religious beliefs on some subjects, in particular matters of gender identity and sexual orientation, and, and, and very particular same-sex marriage, that when, when same-sex marriage became the law of the land in, in, in 2015, Obergefell, um, matter of constitutional law, all states had to recognize it. That a number of the justices, including Chief Justice Roberts, including Justice Kennedy, who wrote the opinion in favor of the requirement that recognize same-sex marriage, said, you know, it's important to understand that some people don't agree with this and they have religious objections to it, and that deserves respect. And of course it deserves respect as a matter of religious freedom. Of course it does. If every religious community gets to define its own blessings and sacraments, and some religious communities are going to recognize and bless 
same-sex marriages, and some are not. And that is a matter of religious freedom about what each religious community decides to do with, with the blessing or sacrament of marriage or divorce or anything else related to family life. Religious communities have their own points of view about family life and about sex and reproduction. That's very typical that religious communities have views on that and they deserve respect. But something else that rolled out after the same-sex marriage decisions, which is not that any religious community was told, hey, now you have to recognize same-sex marriages, perform them inside your faith community. It's that the balance of judgment about whether same-sex relationships deserve equal respect with others in the society changed, right? You have, you have non-discrimination laws in only half the states, but in about half of them. And you have same-sex marriage recognized everywhere. And so suddenly the opponents of those kinds of practices were on the defensive for the first time in a long time, right? They had controlled the culture for a very long time in America, but now they were on the defensive. And, and they started pushing back in a variety of ways. And, and one of the ways you see the pushback is in the wedding vendor cases where the people who bake the wedding cakes or provide other services for weddings say, oh, no, no, we're not doing it. For, we're not going to do that for same-sex wedding. In Fulton against the city of Philadelphia about whether same-sex couples could be foster parents and Catholic social services says, no, no, we don't want to have to certify same-sex couples as qualified to be foster parents. Well, we only want to do that work, certification work for, for traditional different sex married couples. So, and, and the Supreme Court winds up, you know, going along with that and saying the free exercise clause protects that right of Catholic social services. So these kinds of culture war issues, and it may be that what we now have is a, is a religious minority pushing back hard against changing social norms. And we have a court that's sympathetic to that pushback. And Look, it is part of the American constitutional tradition that certain kinds of minority rights are to be recognized, right? So it would be, it would be oppressive if suddenly the state said every religious community has to perform same-sex marriages within their community. That would, be, that would be an oppression of religious communities that have a different view. Nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing that. But still, I, I get the sense that there are Supreme Court justices and, and Justice Alito was like the leader of, of this particular pack who has this grievance about traditional religious views and they're not respected anymore. And somehow that maybe he's going to see Coach Kennedy as an example of that. Coach Kennedy was a football coach who just wants to, to thank the Lord and praise the Lord right after the game at the 50-yard line. And, and, and Traditionally, that would have been, you know, admired or smiled at, and, and now all of a sudden he can't keep his job because he wants to do it. I, I could see Justice Alito seeing the case just that way. Well, Professor Lupu, thank you so much for your fantastic insight. It's been such a pleasure to have you on High School SCOTUS, and maybe you'll come back one day. I really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to have the conversation with you. You ask wonderful and insightful questions. I appreciate them, and you will please let me know. Um, when the link on this goes live so I can share it with my friends. I will. Thank you so much again. Elise just spoke with Professor Ira C. Lupu about the conflict between free religious exercise on school campuses and preventing the establishment of religion in those same settings. With today's podcast, we hope you learn that schools cannot interfere with private prayer, but that schools also cannot use their authority or their platform to impress certain religious opinions, viewpoints, and beliefs on their students. That's the government endorsing a religion. And really, the line between when the school is espousing religious beliefs and when an individual is doing so privately, that line gets blurrier and blurrier every single day with cases about students praying over the loudspeaker and football coaches sermonizing at the 50-yard line. Our next episode is coming in two weeks. And it will also focus on religion. Next time, we will talk more generally about how religion and school intersect and clash with hopefully some insight into Wisconsin v. Yoder, Westside Community School v. Mervins, and Good New Club versus Milford Central. If you're just 
too excited for that next episode on religion and schools to drop, you should just go check out the High School SCOTUS website at highschoolscotus.com because you can read oral argument previews, opinion analysis, historical discussion of school-related cases, and interviews with eminent legal scholars. Everything you need to stay in touch with the court. That's highschoolscotus.com. And meanwhile, while you're here, leave us a rating, drop us a review. We can't wait to see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Elise Fenner. I'm Hannah Sorrell. We'll see you next time.